want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. <clears throat> I want to begin reading at verse 1 of Psalm 37, and I'm going to read down through verse uh, 9. Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither, like green plants, they will soon die and fade away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. As we've been saying, the Psalms are written to address much of the emotional life of believers in God. Uh, It deals with many of the ups and downs of emotions that you and I wrestle with on a regular basis. Two of the themes that are strong in the Psalms are the themes of anxiety and the theme of fear. Uh, Usually it's anxiety that ultimately ends up manifesting itself in fear, a, a cause of concern that becomes so strong that it becomes a bit of a paralysis that we would call uh you know, frozen in a state of fear and inactivity. <clears throat> the reason why many of us face anxiety uh, is because we observe a world that is broken, uh, a world that struggles with trouble, with unexpected and often unanticipated seasons of difficulty and struggle. We struggle with what we perceive as inequities in life, don't we? We see things happening to certain people, and we're like, why is it happening to them? Why do, and, and it's kind of a popular phrase in our culture, why do bad things happen to good people, okay? And it captures a, a, a common feeling that many of us experience in the world that we live in, in a fallen world. So we, at times, perceive inequalities and inequities, and it kind of causes us to say, you know, what's up with that? Why is that that way? And, and, and why does God allow that? That's probably the bigger question that we struggle with. But the other thing I think that we deal with is this. We love the fact of divine providence, right? We rest in the fact that God is in control. Famous early chorus uh, in the, I think, 80s, 70s was God is in control, right? And that is a very comforting thought for us. But we, what we also struggle with is at times the apparent inactivity of God. Right? We see wrong happening and we want to see justice come and come quickly. And when we don't see it, we end up wrestling with what we love. And that is we love the fact that God is in control, but we struggle with the fact that God seems to delay justice. And so we live in a world like that where there is, on the part of God, apparent inaction. And I think the way we want to say it is that there is an apparent inaction on the part of God. It seems that he's standing back lacking concern 
for his people. And that leads us to respond to the emotions of anxiety and fear in somewhat predictable ways. And those two ways are addressed at the beginning of this psalm, verse 1. But the psalmist says to us, do not fret because of evil men. Don't be envious of those who do wrong. Okay, now what that tells me is this. It tells me that there is an assumption for us living in this world that this issue of evil will be present. Meaning it's, it's there. It's part of the spiritual landscape in the world that you and I live in. And so when the psalmist addresses this issue of fear and anxiety, he comes out right up front and says, don't fret when you see evil. Don't let it take you down because of evildoers. And this idea of fretting, I want to give you a definition of this, and hopefully this is helpful. To fret means to to burn, to smolder, or to kindle. Okay, it's kind of an, it's not the overt expression. It's typically kind of an inward kind of simmering or rumbling that's going on, a, a discontentment that sometimes when you're around people or internally in your own life, you may sense it, okay, that there's this part of you that is, is uneasy. One writer described it as a low-grade fever of discontentment. You ever have one of those things that just kind of, it hangs on, you can't quite identify it, it's, is it viral, low-grade fever? It is, Okay. All right, so you got some type of virus that's causing a low-grade fever, and you're, you're just, you're kind of out of sorts. How you doing? I'm okay. This one's wrestling with this low-grade fever, headache, whatever it is. It's, it's, fretting is kind of like that. It's not the bombastic, overt, you know, kind of loud opposition to what's happening. It's kind of just simmering beneath the surface. It's a low-grade fever that leads to content. And it's fascinating in this psalm that the psalmist anticipates that that unaddressed will ultimately lead to anger and rage. So if you're here this morning and you say, hey, I'm dealing with the low-grade fever of discontent, okay, I want to encourage you to be responsive to the truth that God gives you this morning from his word because that low-grade discontent will at times in your life flare up in anger and you're going to say, where'd that come from? Or I didn't expect that. Or your mate's going to say, What's wrong with you? And you're going to look for an immediate response. You're going to look in your immediate circumstances for a solution to the problem that's been simmering beneath the surface for a while and now has finally taken over. Okay? So the warning from Scripture is very clear. Don't fret because of evildoers. We'll come back a little bit on what that means. Now, why do we fret because of evildoers? Okay? Here's the struggle. Okay? It is the apparent prosperity of wrongdoers that leads to trouble in the heart of believers. It leads to a low-grade discontentment. And the honest truth is we have a natural tendency to be irritated by that prosperity. It's addressed over and over in Scripture. James dealt with some of this theme in Psalm 73. Okay, this, why, why are things the way that they appear to be? So, We have a natural tendency, but we also need to admit that we have a limited perspective. The second part of verse 1 says this. It says, don't be envious of those who do wrong. Now, that would seem to indicate if I'm being envious, it means I have a desire for something that they possess. I want what they have. The assumption is if I had what they have, then I would be happy. Ever felt that way? Honestly. 
I think most of us have felt that way. We wish for the circumstances of others. We wish for the children of others. We may, may wish for the mate of others, for the job of others. We have a natural tendency to feel this way. A feeling of discontentment or stronger, this idea of envy is a resentful longing. Okay? It doesn't want them to have it. It thinks that they deserve it. You understand that? Envy is, they don't deserve what they have. You're not happy for them. If you were happy for them, you wouldn't be envying them. Okay? The envy is, they don't deserve what they have, and I want it, and without it, I can't be content. That low-grade fever then begins to simmer. And the reason I long for it is because I believe it is essential to my happiness. Right? Because here's how we feel. In envy, we feel like if I had what they have, then my needs would be met and I would therefore be a happier person, more content. Why is that a sad perspective? Why is that a troubling perspective for a believer? Okay, I believe it's a troubling perspective because it, it, it assumes that possessions or observable blessings are necessarily the path to happiness, that if I had those things, then I would be experiencing a degree of happiness from temporary things. And what, what ends up happening in that scenario is I become an idolater, okay? I am assuming that there are things apart from God that can make me happy. Well, that begins to mess with my life values as a believer because I, I can, if that's my mindset, I can begin to justify behavior to get certain experiences to find happiness apart from God, okay? And that leads me into the, really the, the most basic sin I can fall into, and that is have no other gods before me. So this morning, I want to I look at this idea of a low-grade fever of discontentment that destroys joy and delight in our lives. And I want to assert that that low-grade fever of fretting and complaint, which ultimately if you would say to me, Tim, what is the greatest manifestation of what these verses are going after? Don't fret and don't envy. If I was to try to put in the most common term I could put it in, I would say it is an attitude of spirit of complaining. And, and unfortunately, we live in a world where that, that's like the tolerated sin because it's not a direct assault on God. It's an indirect assault on the goodness of God. But I think it, it, that fever, I think, begins to take us down. It begins to steal our lives of joy and happiness. And so God is very direct here. Don't fret because of evil men. They will be there. Don't let them govern your life. And don't be envious of them. That low-grade fever can neutralize the joy and testimony of the people of God. And that, to me, is what is saddest. Ultimately, we end up casting aspersions on the character of God by our response to the struggles that we live with in this world. Now, what does this text seek to do. I believe this text, and, and we're only going to deal with the first eight or nine verses. What this text seeks to do is provide, if you will, in the analogy, an antibiotic, a, a, a medicine for dealing with the low-grade fever, a way to address it, but not a way to, if you will, cover the symptoms, okay, which is what I think I tend to do with many things that I wrestle with physically, okay? This is bothering me, take this, it doesn't resolve the problem. I didn't go to the doctor to get my knee or my elbow or my shoulder looked at. I just blinded the pain. And what it tends to do is simmer beneath the surface because I really haven't addressed the issue. 
And what this text is going to do is provide medicine that aims to eliminate this tendency of complaint that is often present in the lives of God's people. So let's look through this text and see if we can find some of the medicine that God is prescribing for us to help us deal with life in a troubled and difficult world. Verse 2, I think, gives us the first answer. Now, it falls on the heels of don't fret and don't envy those who do wrong. Don't be stoked by the apparent prosperity of those that don't love God. For, verse 2, which now tells us why we shouldn't envy and why we shouldn't fret. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Now, in the part of the world that we live in, um, it takes, usually it's mid-August, right? Late July, early to mid-August, that we start to see grass fading away. We watch the color in the grass begin to turn, go away, and then it starts to go dormant, okay? In the Middle East, um, the growth of plants is periodic and intermittent and brief, okay? There's a little rain, there's a little growth, sun comes up, next day it's done, Okay, the analogy that David is using is from the Middle East, from a very arid culture. There's rain, something grows. It is not sustainable. Okay, it, all of that growth is at best temporary in that setting. And so what is the psalmist saying to us? Okay, what the psalmist is saying to us is that all that energy that you're wasting on complaining, fretting, and envying, all of that energy is wasted. Why? Because... First of all, the earthly possessions or pleasures that the wicked are enjoying are at best temporary. Okay, they're, they're short-lived. And we as the people of God need to learn to live with an eternal perspective, with a broader picture in play. That ultimately God is in control and that I am living a very short life on a very small planet in the kingdom of a great God. Okay, and when you lose that perspective, everything seems monumental. Okay, everything seems monumental. I kind of, having raised a couple of daughters along with my dear wife, adolescence is interesting, isn't it? Because in adolescence, whatever's happening in, not in the day, right, but in the minute, whatever's happening that minute is the entire life. All right, whatever comments been sent to someone, remember my daughter's coming home from school and it's just like, to them, I'm saying like, what happened? Well, somebody said X to me. Therefore, I'm, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you raise teenagers, you know. Okay, my life is a total mess. I'll never be happy. I'm ugly. I'm, I'm fat. I'm all, on and on it goes. Why? Because somebody said something. We, I think, as Christians, tend to be spiritually adolescent. We, we struggle with the long view. Okay, we understand where they're teenagers. They don't have enough life experience to get perspective on things. They don't know that, those, that meaner things are going to be said down the road. And greater fears are going to enslave down. They don't know that yet. And so what the psalmist is saying to the person who is caught up in a complaining spirit, just, 
You know, isn't it interesting that later in the book of Philippians, Paul's going to say, do everything without what? Without grumbling and complaining, that fretting and envying that simmers beneath the surface of many people's lives because other people seem to have it better than them. Okay, that issue. And what, 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 what David is communicating under the power of the Spirit of God, it's like grass. It grows up and the sun comes and it's scorched, it withers. It's temporary. So if you weight those earthly blessings that are temporary with eternal value, which is the mind of adolescence, okay, you will, you will foster complaining and arguing and envy. You'll feed that. You need to realize, you know what? I, and I forget which writer said this. Abraham Lincoln quoted this during the Civil War. He said this. He said, this too will pass. It will pass. We, we live in a world where we are prone to seek temporary pleasure, and we find that those temporary pleasures don't last. They don't endure, and they leave us craving for more. It leads into a category that we call addiction and slavery. I end up chasing things that are unable to give permanent satisfaction. And I think one of the things that the psalmist is saying is something like this. It won't last. That is what they seek, evildoers. And secondly, they won't last. And it's going to be a theme when I get to the end of this discussion. You'll see how this ties together. Okay, it, what they want won't last, and they themselves won't last. Because ultimately, the justice of God does come. And I think as Christians, we need to keep that in mind. Delay in the action of God against opponents does not mean inaction on the part of God. Okay, you be very careful that you don't think that the delay of God is equal to or tantamount to the inaction of God. Okay, this psalm is loaded. You, you can read the rest of it with, with that kind of a framework, and you're going to see what I'm talking about. There's an eternal perspective that drives the psalmist. Let me just give you one illustration of it, okay? Verse 25, he says, I was young and now I am old, meaning I'm writing from experience. I've been through adolescence. He says, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Now, let me ask you a question. Has David ever seen the righteous apparently forsaken? Did he ever see them appear to be forsaken? Yeah. So what does he mean? Oh, he's a liar. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Now, what is David saying? David, David is speaking in the terms of ultimate. You know, Jesus said to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the truth was that he, that he had and that he hadn't. He had a plan for his resurrection, right? And this is the same experience that we as Christians have where we feel forsaken and where we may be in great time of need. But is that the end for the children of God? And the answer, David's going to say, I have never seen that as the end. I've seen it as the experience of, but I've never seen it as the end of. Okay, and you, got, you have to keep it pushing out what James talked about a couple weeks ago, a broader perspective, not an adolescent perspective. Second thought comes up in verse 3. The text says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the, in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Now, what verse 3 is 
encouraging us towards in the midst of a tendency to complain, struggling with envy, struggling with fretting, the low-grade fever. Okay, what, he, what, he, what he's going to push at is this idea that we should actively pursue obedience in those circumstances. And in that obedience, we are demonstrating our trust in the Lord. Okay, that we should not allow the struggles that we face to derail us from our faithful pursuit of God himself. And, and the way that he says it is interesting. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Okay, now, so what does that mean? It means I'm in a circumstance where my behavior is not being driven by the circumstances that I'm in currently. But the God who I serve as I trust him drives me to obey. Okay, and this is, where, this is where we struggle. We want the negative experiences to become the reason or excuse for bad behavior. That if God not, is not doing me good, what can I justify? I can, if you believe that God is not doing you good, ultimately, you can justify any behavior in your life. You can justify anything in your life. And it, this is the way it works in our minds. And what David is saying, do what is right. And then he gives this fascinating statement. He says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. It's a fascinating statement. Okay, just trust in the Lord and actively pursue him. Stay where he's called you. For Israel, this was always the struggle, wasn't it? The land of promise was a place of struggle. It was a place that as they entered into it, there was great opposition. And what is David saying? Stay where God called you. And obey him there. Trust him enough to stay where he called you. So think about this in your life. What is the circumstance that complaining has so eroded your faith and torn away at your life that you're contemplating leaving the place that God called you? Leaving the place where God is working in you, the relationship, the workplace, whatever it may be, many different circumstances. What is the situation that you're tempted to leave because you doubt the goodness of God? And I love the way the psalmist says, he says, stay in the land. And in that land, he sticks with an analogy. He says, uh, in, in, in the uh, New International Version, it says, enjoy safe pasture. In some of your translations, it says, feed on his faithfulness. Okay, trust in the Lord, do good, and feed on his faithfulness. Which means what? Let your trusting, obedient behavior be driven by the fact that the God whom you serve is ultimately faithful. Because the fallen world tends to cause me to think that he's not and that things won't get better. The psalmist says, if you're tempted to fret, if you're tempted to be discouraged, if you're tempted to envy others, commit yourself, trust him, and feed on his faithfulness. As you trust God and you stay Faithful to him in a difficult circumstance, feed on his faithfulness that in the midst of staying in a situation I am getting nothing out of or a situation that is stealing from my life, but it's where God wants me. As you're there, you need to feed on the faithfulness of God. You need to rehearse the fact that God is faithful, that he is for you, that he never lets go as we sung this morning. Okay, because your life circumstances at times will cause you to think that God is unfaithful. And what does David say? Feed on his faithfulness. Rehearse the goodness of God. Think of the stories from the Old Testament where God showed up and worked powerfully in the lives of his people. That's what the psalmist is saying. And he wants us to do that while the inequities of life still exist. 
You see, what hasn't changed for the people that are reading the psalm is their circumstance. But perspective is being adjusted. Remember who God is. Doug spoke about this last Sunday. He is the good shepherd that leads us in green pastures. Feed on his faithfulness, which is feed on the provision of God in your life. I have the blessing of having a dad who, who is an imperfect man, but who I would say has exhibited for me in many, many circumstances in business, in physical situations, uh, meaning uh, physical medical situations, uh, in family life, who has left me a legacy of what I would call simple trust. It's just, for my dad, it's never been complicated. And I, I love, I took him to University of Pennsylvania Hospital uh, two weeks ago for melanoma surgery. I ended up with a six and a quarter inch cut on the top of his head. Ugly, ugly. I've had some good laughs over it, actually. He, he came out of surgery with this white pressure bandage. And you know Pope Francis is coming to Philadelphia, right? <laughs> so I took a picture of that and sent it to my family. I said, the Pope has arrived early. I honestly, probably for my mom, probably one of the most concerning days of her life because he, it, it turns out he has stage one melanoma. So it's not apparently bad, apparently, okay? And I, he said, would you take me down? I said, yes. And a couple other members offered and he's like, well, I want you to take me. I said, okay, I'll take you. I, I honestly, I looked forward to going because I knew that at every turn, he would, in a very subtle yet direct way, be bringing up his faith in Christ. Every time a nurse or one of those people that comes to interview you and put an iPad in front of you now and have you fill out this survey of 75 questions that he was, he's like, it's that emotional stuff and my dad's not that way. He's like, this is like the most ridiculous. So I took, I said, I'll do it for you. I answer all those questions. I told him how he felt that day. <laughs> but every time somebody, how you doing? I'm fine. I've, 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 I've prayed up this morning. I've given it to God, and I'm, I'm good. I mean, over and over, we found through the day, just because of him talking about God and expressing his trust in God, two nurses that were Christians on that floor. Just like, he said, will you take me? I said, it would be a privilege. I, it's, it is so refreshing, isn't it? Being around someone who has a simple, in the midst of a circumstance, we're like, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? who is saying, God, I embrace this and I trust you. It's, it's that simple. Trust in the Lord and do good. Understand that God is in control. So I ask you this question this morning. What is the area or circumstance in your life that is causing fretting and envy? Were you low-grade discontent? And were you may, in a very subtle or overt way, be expressing Jealousy over what others have. And it's been eating at you for a long time. Stealing your joy, disrupting your marriage, disrupting your relationship with your parents because you're not trusting God. And that low-grade fever is infectious. And God is saying to you this morning, he's saying to me as I went through this, trust in the Lord and do good. And stay in the place where he called you. And enjoy him. Feed on him. Remind yourself not of your circumstance, but of the God who is with you in that circumstance. Trust him and do good. The verse that 
is amazing to me is the next verse. Because this is the antithesis. Verse 4 is the antithesis to complaint and envy. Okay? Here's what I can tell you. If you're dealing with the low-grade complaining that is characterized by fretting and envy, I can tell you this this morning. You are not delighting in God. You are not enjoying God. Uh, and neither am I. And I want to be honest with you this morning. I, I was going to say I'm an interesting person, but that would just make you all laugh. <laughs> I'm odd, okay? I'm odd. I can get derailed by the strangest things. The, the most foolish and stupid concerns can throw me down the stairs. And I can start to feel the fever coming on. And here's what's always true. In those circumstances, I can never be accused of being a person who is at that time delighting in God. Can't. Folks, here's, here's, here's a couple things that don't abide together. Envy and fretting and delight in God. They just don't do well together. They don't mix. Okay? So if you say, you know what? I'm tired of the low-grade fever that plagues my life. They say, Tim, what do I need to do? What does God say? You know what God says? Delight in the Lord. Delight in Him. And that, how that's going to look in your life can look all different kinds of ways. And here's what it says. He will give you the desires of your heart. Find joy in God. Go hard after joy and pleasure and happiness in God. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. He will purify your desires. He will, as you pursue him and you get a big view of God, he will kill envy because you're going to realize, you know what? I have everything I could possibly ever want. We sang the song this morning, Carmel, All I Have is Christ. Sometimes when I sing that song to myself, I'm saying all I need is Christ. To combat all of the anxiety and struggle that is part of a fallen world that moves further and further away from God and that is prone to embrace evil, what do you do? Well, you make much of God. I can't, look, we as Christians don't practice jihad. We don't go out and confront with sword. That's not what we do. We get on our knees and seek God. We delight in God. We praise God together. And we believe that that praise is the hope that people need. Delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Some interpreters take that as he will conceive in you the right kind of desires. As you bask in the glory of God, he will conceive, he will birth in your heart new desires. And as he does that, here's what happens. He will expel other desires by a greater desire. You see, the key to defeating sin is not to make decisions. Your decisions are painfully weak. My decisions in the flesh are painfully weak. The way to find victory over lesser delights is to have a higher delight. You know, the book of Proverbs says this. It says, see if I can get this right. It says, To the hungry soul, even the bitter thing is sweet. 
but the full stomach loathes the honeycomb. You get that? To the hungry soul, even the bitter thing is sweet. I don't know if you're like me. If my wife wants me to try something new in the realm of food, and it's usually weird stuff like chia seeds, that's the latest thing, or what's that other stuff called? That new grain that people are like into? Quinoa, that stuff, okay? I, I tell honey, I, if I'm starving, I'll try it. The bitter thing is sweet. I, I, and I, it's fine. I'll try a certain thing. I tried an olive one time when I was really hungry, okay? I determined that I'll never want another olive, okay? But here's what the proverb says. To the full soul, even honeycomb is loathed. You ever had that happen? You eat such a good meal and somebody says, you want dessert? And you're like, nah, I'll pass. I had that happen once. <laughs> you know, what? You're, so, you're so satiated that the temptation to other things that aren't good for you is defeated by the fullness of the good. Do you understand that? Delight yourself in the Lord. Fill yourself up on the faithfulness of God. And then those unfaithful promises of lust and temptation will lose their power. Not because you decided you didn't want to partake of them. But because you got so full of God. That the Spirit of God, Romans 5, 5, is shedding abroad the love of Christ in your heart. So strongly as you delight in him that those other temptations lose their power. And that is a great place to be. Folks, do I live there? No. Do I want to live there? Yes. Have I been there? Yes, I've been there. I visited there. I want to live there. I want to live there. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll meet your needs. And all that stuff around you may remain unchanged in the immediate. They don't want to bother you as much anymore. Why? Because you won't need to have what they have, their apparent happiness and their temporary things. You won't feel so compelled by them because you're full, delighting in God. So verse 4, I think, is simply this, actively pursue pleasure in God. John Piper talks about this as Christian hedonism. You know what hedonism is? Hedonism is a philosophy of life that sees the pursuit of happiness as the highest good. That is one scary statement. It sees the pursuit of happiness as the highest good. So if I ask you this question, is it okay for a Christian to be pleasure-seeking? What would you say? Yes or no? Can I strengthen it? I don't think it's good for a Christian to be pleasure-seeking. I think it's commanded that a Christian be pleasure-seeking as the highest good. But according to this text, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Do you realize that often in our hearts, we don't even know what we really want? We... You ever gotten out of bed at night and gone out of the refrigerator? I, it's painful how often this happens to me, okay? You get down, you open the door, you look in the refrigerator, and you're like, you close the door and go back to bed, All right? This usually happens to me after I fall asleep watching the news, and then I'm getting ready to go up to bed, which is what I really should do. I shouldn't eat anything, but my stomach's like, hmm. And you go and you look, and you're like, eh. 
But not, nothing in there. You're not even sure what you want. And whatever it is that you want isn't going to, it's not going to satisfy. And spiritually, we go through seasons like that. This text aims to clarify for us in one area. If you're wrestling with envy, if you're wrestling with fretting, with a negative attitude, a complaining attitude, you need to learn to delight in God. And so do I. It's why I love our corporate seasons of worship. That's why I love it. You know what worship is? Worship is the exalting God as the greatest good and then hotly pursuing him. And in pursuing him, we find other lesser desires being defeated and annihilated in the light of his glory, glory and grace. Actively pursue happiness by delighting in the God who has saved you from your sin. All right, let's just look at verse 8, and, and then we're going to end. <clears throat> verse 7. Oh, it's so hard. Verse 7 is powerful. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then again, the word is rehearsed. Don't fret. Don't fret. Be still means to what? It means to go into the realm of inactivity until you are assured of the power and presence and provision of God. Be still. Remember when the girls would get agitated at night, one of our daughters wrestled with night fright. I think that's what you call it. And I remember hearing this very pained scream. And running into the room and grabbing them and saying, be quiet. Shh. It's the robber. No, I didn't do that. No, I say, it's dad. And that's it. I didn't have a lecture. They didn't even know. What are you afraid? I don't know. That's the joy of having daughters. <laughs> what are you? I don't know. Just, I'm afraid. And all, all I would want to do is assure them of my presence. That's it. You know what God says? God says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10 takes it further. Above politics, the New Living Translation says, above everything. Be still. Stop complaining and envying. Rest in me and know that I am God and I am above everything that is capturing your concern right now. I am above, above it all. And I think that text, that command, be still, is not a command to inactivity. It's an active command to force yourself to rest in the presence of God. Now, for someone who is as active as I am, and I've learned something in the last year and a half with the shift in my responsibilities. I have learned that I struggle with resting in the presence of God. I am, I'm not act active, I'm hyperactive, okay? I seriously wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I don't have to set my alarm, I just wake up. And I, I have to restrain myself actively to be still. It doesn't come natural for me. And I have to fight to spend time in the place of delight. May God help us to be still, to actively assert a position before God that says, I am here waiting and delighting in you. Verse 8 then gives us the last directive. It says, refrain from anger 
and turn from wrath. And here's all I want to say to you, because I have to make this brief. All I want to say this morning is, if you allow envy and bitterness to grow into a full-blown fever, if you don't address it with the antibiotics of God's word, it will take you to places that you could never imagine. Envy will destroy. And fretting will destroy. Because what it does, it, it, it assaults the character of God in your life. It downgrades, or as one writer says, it de-gods God. You let the lies of the evil one come and find place in your life. And you begin to repeat those lies. And you begin to doubt the goodness of God. All bets are off in your life. All bets are off. Okay, you and I become capable of just about anything. That's true in marriage. You cultivate discontentment towards your mate or envy of their situation as compared to your situation or their family compared to your family. And you'll destroy your marriage. You start desiring the kids of other parents because you wish your kids were like that. You will destroy your own kids. You can mark it down. That kind of envying and fretting, complaining spirit never builds anybody up. It never accomplishes anything good. It's only destruction. And I would encourage you by the grace of God to ask God to help you to lay hold of these truths in this psalm that will bring you great freedom and great joy. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. It only goes down. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I'm going to end with this. In this psalm, it comes up, I think, eight times. It talks about inheriting the land. As the way that God talks about the blessing on his people. They'll inherit the land. They'll inherit the land forever. Folks, can I tell you something? There is no Israelite in the Old Testament that ever inherited the land forever. So what is God talking about? And God's talking about the ultimate Zion. He's talking about the ultimate city of God. The new Jerusalem, where there's no need for a son, where the son of God is its light. All right, what is he saying? I, I, you, what I have for you in the future will blow away all of your fretting and all of your complaining. You will never envy again. Everybody will envy you, the people of God. And the way the psalmist ends it, he says in verse 10, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Now that's in the scheme of God, right? A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years with the Lord is as a day, right? And you know what you and I are bothered about? We're bothered about like 30 some days of trouble, okay? And what is God saying? That's, that's a lot of years, okay? Well, ultimately, he's saying, I've got it. I've got it. And every attempt against you is temporary. And I love verse 11 because Jesus quotes this in Matthew 5, 5. He says, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, blessed are the meek. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And folks, when you know 
that eternity has secured for you, the kingdom of God, life in his presence, joy, peace forever. It will loosen your grip on the temporary realm. And it will free you from the bitterness and envy that leads to anger and destructive behavior. Delight yourself on the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Father, as we conclude this morning, we are grateful that we serve a God who is inexhaustible.